You are back with The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Dr. Tomosaku Kawasaki died in Japan this month at the age of 95. His name is linked to what was a mysterious disease in young children that he identified decades ago. Dr. Marion Mellish, who was the first to identify Kawasaki syndrome cases here in Hawaii, knew Dr. Kawasaki personally and recalled collaborating in those early days of research here in the islands. He was a remarkable pediatrician, and he was basically a pediatrician at heart. He was a generalist when he started seeing patients with an illness that he had never seen before. He put the first couple of patients together in his brain as uh, God only knows, but he kept his careful case note on the patients, and soon he had, over the next six years, he collected 48 more, and so I wrote a paper in 1987 about the first 50 patients. The paper that he wrote was in the Japanese language. It was also illustrated with diagrams and charts and gave a very, very complete description of clinical Kawasaki disease uh, that actually hasn't been equaled by anyone. And the criteria that he used and he defined are the ones that are used today to diagnose Kawasaki disease. From that point on, though, he had a quite remarkable personality and encouraged collaboration. And while he didn't start as a researcher, he established a research institute, and people joined him in in studying this mysterious disease. He was always extremely open-minded. He was able to keep in mind clashing ideas from different people. He never got into the uh, ego thing, which is actually, you know, often found in scientists who are often very competitive. So when you started to see these mysterious cases here in Hawaii and what you reached out to him? His first paper was in uh, Japanese, uh, which I do not read, and it was in a very small local journal, uh, so um, I was completely unaware of that. But I started to see patients when, as a young doctor in my first real job, I started to see kids that were not in any textbook that I had ever seen. And I had a colleague who was a pathologist and another colleague who was a, a rheumatologist. And we independently put together 12 patients that had Kawasaki disease, or we didn't know what they had, and reported them at a medical meeting. And at that time, we also had the sort of accident of a visiting Japanese physician came to Kapiolani, actually Kawikiolani, our predecessor hospital for children. So it was showing pictures, and he said, I've been showing these pictures on my tour across the United States in multiple children's hospitals, and no one has ever seen this disease, but this is a disease we're seeing in Japan. And when we saw the pictures, we said, oh, well, we have seen that disease, and in fact, we have one in the hospital right now. And so we took him to see our patient, and then he told us about Dr. Kawasaki. And I wrote to him. I had opportunity to have a translator here. So I wrote to him in Japanese and told him he didn't have to write to me back in um, English. So we became correspondents and, and later within a year or so we met and that was the beginning. But I independently identified with my colleagues the same characteristics of these patients that Dr. Kawasaki had identified. And as it turns out, we are the place in the world where Kawasaki disease is most common outside of Japan and Korea. So in our multi-ethnic population, Kawasaki disease is 15 times more common among people of Japanese and Korean ancestry than it is of people of unmixed European ancestry. We don't understand the new syndrome, but since I spoke with you last, a great deal has been learned about um, the new pediatric multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children. This is emerged for the first time in late March in Britain, France, and Italy. And there are now a clear picture from over 10 reported clinical series of over 221 cases that are now in the literature. When I spoke to you before, there was nothing in the medical literature and we were dealing with news reports and alerts from uh, health departments and sort of rumor. But now we know that this is a very severe illness More than half of the patients actually present in only four days of illness already in shock with left ventricular heart failure, meaning that their heart is not capable of carrying out the needs of their bodies uh, for them to survive. They need fluid intravenously, medications to keep their blood pressure up, and care and intensive care units. 
Uh, this is much more severe than the usual presentation of children with Kawasaki disease. In addition, they may have some features of Kawasaki disease, usually not the entire clinical picture, but often with red eyes, with red lips, with a rash. And the group that are infected are very different from usual Kawasaki patients. Their average age is nine years, whereas the average age of children with Kawasaki disease is about 18 months. It's just fascinating uh, how much we've been able to learn in such a short time. Such a short time. We learned this all in the month of May, and the disease is relatively uncommon. It sometimes has features of what had been called a viral infection of the heart or a viral myocarditis, and of course, COVID is a virus, and the other interesting thing about this new multi-system inflammatory disease is that they have evidence of having had COVID, uh, not necessarily. In fact, most do not still have a positive test, but they have evidence of antibodies. And they all started showing up in these hard-hit cities where most of the reports come from, uh, New York, Paris, London, uh, northern Italy about a month after the peak of the COVID in those cities, which suggests that rather than being caused directly by the virus damaging their systems and their hearts, it's what we call a post-infectious disease or the response of their immune system is what is causing their damage. Recently, the state indicated that we had a number of new positive cases, which have included children. Yes, there has been one child ill enough to be hospitalized, and some of these new cases have occurred in family settings, as well as most recently in in a convalescent home. So in the family setting, children have gotten COVID. Most of them have not been sick enough to be hospitalized. One has been, and uh, that child responded well to treatment and did not progress. The group in, in New York was very clear that they had been seeing children admitted to the hospital, say February and March, that had predominantly a respiratory disease, which is what our most severely ill child had. So it's like the COVID expectations in adults. They come in with fever and shortness of breath. The inflammatory system associated with COVID has been different. It has very little lung involvement, uh, predominantly heart involvement, and that has been why it has been so different and not really understood yet. As our state and other states move to reopen schools, you know, hopefully we can find out more before school starts in August. There's one thing that may be reassuring. So far in Asia, in Japan and Korea and in China, in places where there has been a lot of COVID, there has been no evidence of this pediatric inflammatory system in Asians. Another interesting thing about it in Europe and New York has been, once again, like Kawasaki, people of Caucasian ancestry appear to be at lowest risk. But the high-risk group for this inflammatory syndrome has been people of African ancestry, either Afro-Caribbean or African, as in, as in France, and Afro-Caribbean in England and Afro-American in uh, the United States. So like Kawasaki, there's a strong genetic association with ethnic background and ancestry, but it's not the same. So perhaps we would not see uh, much of this inflammatory syndrome in a population that is primarily Asian and Pacific Islander. There's no evidence so far that children who had Kawasaki disease in the past are particularly susceptible to this new inflammatory syndrome when they encounter COVID. So I think that should be reassuring for, uh, for patients here, for parents here. That was Dr. Marion Mellish, clinical physician at Kapilani Women's and Children's Hospital, specializing in infectious disease and pediatrics. She's also on the faculty at the University of Hawaii, John A. Burns School of Medicine. Later in the hour, we will spotlight how a small school is preparing to welcome students back into the fall during these COVID times. But now it's time to take a look at the other side of the world. The United Kingdom is set to roll out the largest easing of restrictions since the COVID crisis began as members of the Islamic faith across the world are forced to cancel their pilgrimage. Here's the BBC with the latest. 
This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Tuesday the 23rd of June. I'm Valerie Sanderson. England is to get the most comprehensive easing of restrictions the lockdown was first imposed. The annual Hajj has effectively been cancelled, with only a 1,000 worshippers allowed to attend. And world tennis number one Novak Djokovic tests positive for the virus. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has announced that pubs, restaurants, cinemas and museums in England will be allowed to reopen from July the 4th. He told Parliament that the two-metre social distancing rule would be reduced to one metre where necessary and outlined that the hospitality sector could resume trading. All hospitality indoors will be limited to table service and our guidance will encourage minimal staff and customer contact. We will ask businesses to help NHS Test and Trace respond to any local outbreaks by collecting contact details from customers, as happens in other countries. The Saudi authorities say only around 1,000 worshippers will be allowed to take part in this year's Hajj pilgrimage to Mecca. It normally attracts more than 2 million people from around the world. Officials had already announced that the event would have to be dramatically scaled down because of the coronavirus. Those attending this summer will undergo checks before arriving in Mecca and be obliged to quarantine when they go home. Local lockdown measures have had to be reintroduced in the German state of North Rhine-Westphalia to an outbreak linked to a meat processing plant. Our correspondent Damien McGuinness is in Berlin. It's a real step back for this area really because for the past few weeks most measures have been lifted in Germany. So bars and restaurants are completely open. Life feels almost back to normal for most of the country. In this district now, for thirds of a million people, suddenly we're going to go back to the state we were a couple of months ago. Now, what that means in concrete details is that bars will be closed again, restaurants will only be able to serve uh, food to go, all gyms, swimming pools, saunas, all sorts of sports facilities, restaurants, museums will all be closed. A court in Brazil has ordered President Jair Bolsonaro to wear a mask in public after he attended political rallies without a face covering. The federal judge in Brasilia said the right-wing leader would face a fine of $400 a day if he continued to disobey guidance aimed at containing the virus. President Bolsonaro has been widely criticised for his handling of the pandemic. Human trials for a COVID-19 vaccine developed by Oxford University are starting in South Africa. 2,000 people will be involved in one of the earliest and most advanced trials for a drug to prevent the disease. Andrew Harding reports from Johannesburg. The first doses of the vaccine are being administered here in Johannesburg this week. South Africa has been chosen not just for its expertise in this field, but because COVID-19 is now spreading fast here. That makes it far easier for scientists to find a community at immediate risk of infection and then to tell whether this British vaccine is effective. Similar tests are already underway in the UK, but the infection rate there is slowing, hence the move not just to South Africa, but to Brazil too, where 5,000 people will be involved in the same vaccine trial. Hindu priests in the Indian state of Odisha are staging a high-profile religious festival with tight restrictions in place because of concerns about the spread of the coronavirus. Our South Asia editor, Joe McGivering, has the details. The Ratiatra is usually a major festival. Tens of thousands of people crowd the streets to watch the giant statues of Hindu deities taken from the temple. But this year, no more than 500 people were allowed to pull each chariot, and officials said they'd all tested negative for the coronavirus. Last week, the Supreme Court had banned the festival because of concerns about the virus, but on Monday, the state authorities, supported by central government, managed to overturn the ban, arguing that it was a matter of faith for millions of people. The men's world number one tennis player Novak Djokovic has tested positive for the coronavirus. He's been criticised for organising a tournament in Croatia and Serbia this month that saw matches in front of thousands of spectators with little social distancing. Several coaches and players have since contracted the virus. Djokovic said he wasn't showing any symptoms and was extremely sorry for each infection. His wife has also tested positive. Barcelona's Lisieux Opera House has opened its doors for the first time since the coronavirus crisis began more than three months ago. Musicians performed a concert in front of a packed, if very quiet, auditorium consisting of nearly 2,500 houseplants. Stay safe. This is the Coronavirus Global Update.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from PAR Hawaii, proud to support Hawaii Nature Center for 30 years and their nature adventure camps on Oahu and Maui. On now, registration at hawaiinaturecenter.org. The news and music you hear on HBR are helped made possible by nearly 200 local organizations, reaching you with their message and making a difference every day. Mahalo to Apetito Craft Pizza and Wine Bar. Hemet and Friends of Waikiki Aquarium. They believe, just as you do, in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Le Jardin Academy with a message of appreciation to its teachers, staff, and families for their hard work and accomplishments throughout the distance learning experience. LeJardinAcademy.org. The state's only prison work furlough program is days away from ending. The Department of Public Safety gave the YWCA notice that it plans to shut down the program, which houses female inmates at its Fernhurst facility at the end of the month. Advocates say it's not for lack of success for a transitional program that was started by T.J. Mahoney and picked up by the Y recently. There are currently six women enrolled who will return to life behind bars next week unless Department of Public Safety has a change of heart in the next few days. We talked to Marion Bray, who completed the program some six years ago and is working for the YWCA as a member services associate. She met with a woman uh, just after they learned that their lives stand to be upended. What it means is that they're going to be taken back to WCCC at the end of the month. They will be placed in a 14-day quarantine. They will be placed in the bridge program at WCCC, which is the kind of in-house work furlough. But some of these women, they don't have jobs yet. Others just started new jobs. And so the concern is, are these new employers that we really don't have a history and a track record with yet going to save our jobs? Is it worthwhile for me to try to get a job right now, knowing that there's this chance in a couple weeks, I'm going to, hey, I need two weeks off. And so they're very concerned and upset about that. You know, a couple of the women have just started jobs. They just are very uncertain about everything. You know, how is this all going to play out? What's going to happen to them in their transition? You know, they're starting to get their foot out in the community and work and live. And that's being yanked out from underneath them. So how did this program help you? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it helped me in so many ways. I actually I went through work furlough at TJ Mahoney's, but then when I was granted parole, I moved into Fernhurst for the home-based program. The community-based work furlough was phenomenal for me. I spent 36 years in prison, and when the paroling authority said, okay, you know, we want you to do work furlough before we consider granting you parole. I said, yes, please. And my case manager asked me whether I would want to do Bridge or TJ Mahoney's. And my short, quick answer was TJ's. I couldn't imagine living half in and half out of the prison, going out into the community, working, and then having to go back in every night and being strip searched and being shut in a cell again. I wanted to be able to get immersed into the community. After so many years, I had a lot to catch up on and a lot to learn. I had a lot of new things to learn how to navigate. I had to figure out how to get my social security card and my ID after not having any of them for so long. And the program helped me navigate all of this. Um, there were days I got so frustrated with some of the challenges and I'd be able to go back and talk to my case manager. and. There were times I just wanted to beat my head against her desk and sob because I was so frustrated with trying to get through the Social Security system. And they just really were there. They supported me. We had different classes. We had you know, job preparedness classes. We had budgeting classes. So many life skill classes to really help you get set up for success when you do step out on your own. And then when I went to Fernhurst and the home base program, the assistance and the guidance continued in that. I was on parole. I was no longer in a program per se and had more freedom, but I still had some kind of structure and help a little bit longer. And then they hooked me up with a rent-to-work program that was a, gave me a rental subsidy for my first year out and just really helped me 
continue my savings, just really get a good foothold on becoming an independent, financially stable person. So to have the doors close so quickly, I mean, this is just next week. Yeah, it's it's heartbreaking. When I found out about it, it, it did. It broke my heart. Because this, this is a valuable asset, not just for the women that are in the program, but for the community as a whole. Because these women are going to be re-entering the community. And why wouldn't we want to help support them in a successful transition? Why wouldn't we want to give them that positive support, those positive connections that don't end once they finish the program? So you fear that they're not going to get a fair shot at transitioning like you did. Exactly. I don't know much about the bridge program at WCCC, but I know they don't have near the programs and the support system that a community-based work furlough has. So if it's a matter of dollars, you know, and hard decisions about cuts that they may have to make internally about programs? It costs less to house a woman in the work furlough program than it does in the prison. It costs about $190 a day on average for one person to stay in prison. And for the work furlough program, we were getting about $120 a day. We've just really been trying to reach out to anybody and everybody we can just to garner support for the program and to encourage the people in power, the Department of Public Safety, the legislators, to save this program. And it's not about the why. It's about a, It's the only community-based work furlough program in the entire state, and it has such great value that to lose that asset would just be devastating to so many people. That was Marianne Bray, a success story and a graduate of the furlough program, now working at the YWCA as an associate. She also holds a second job as a dog trainer. We reached out to the Department of Public Safety for comment. It issued a written statement about its decision. It says the state is facing an unprecedented financial situation because of the COVID-19 pandemic and is projecting budget shortfalls. It noted the YWCA Fernhurst furlough contract to provide housing, support services, and a meal plan for up to 14 female inmates for one year is $613,000. It goes on to say that the female inmate population at the Women's Community Correctional Center has been steadily decreasing over the last four years, and as of today's count, is below operational capacity with 212 inmates. The department says it considers the move to close the furlough program a temporary measure and hopes to continue a relationship with the YWCA as it has for the last 20 years. On our reality check this morning, Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Blaze Level has his eyes on a bill pushing for more transparency when it comes to misconduct in police officers. It's one of the items that lawmakers are addressing this week. Good morning, Blaze. Morning, Catherine. So this is really interesting given the climate of uh, what we've been seeing in the last few weeks with Black Lives Matter. It is. You know, I, I covered this bill last session and I wrote about why exactly it died. You know, the lawmakers couldn't come to negotiations on it. They saw all these issues and we really thought that, you know, that's where it would die. That's what happens every year to this bill. It just dies because of issues that the lawmakers couldn't work out. But, you know, given all the events that have happened in the past week, in the past months, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement spreading across the nation, the legislature has been under incredible public pressure to pass some kind of police reform. And, you know, this was sitting in a conference committee that's like one step away from getting to Governor David Ige's desk. And this is one of the measures they identified that, you know, maybe they should take another look at, try to come back to the ne- to the negotiating table and figure out, you know, what's a way they could get this bill passed. Yes, and we did talk with the uh, police union head, Malcolm Lutu, last week, and he had said he had just gotten a call from um, Scott Psyche's office, from the Speaker of the House, uh, wanting to talk about this bill. So he was down there meeting. So it was interesting that there's been this back and forth. 
It will be interesting, and it will be interesting to watch that back and forth that you mentioned. You know, right now the Bills stuck in what's called a conference committee, and this is usually the time of year where the House and Senate, they appoint their negotiators, and then there's usually some kind of standoff. You know, each side wants to get what they want. Uh, Ideally, though, because this is such a short session, they'd be working together. And I've got word that um, they're hearing they're meeting today later this afternoon. But I've got word that they're probably not going to pass the bill out yet. There's a couple things they're still looking at. One of those concerns is something the unions raised in the past. It's uh, how does making these um, disciplinary records public for police officers? How is it going to, you know, affect this union arbitration process that the union has gotten into the police contract? So that's something that the lawmakers will be working out. Well, you mentioned in your article that they met yesterday and they came up with one plan to disclose some information, but it's only for for new cases, right? Not past cases. Right. I, I, I think that's a good point to make about this is that there's one um, line at the end of the bill that uh, would mean, you know, basically whenever this bill is passed, that's the start date for whenever the public could actually access the disciplinary records of a police officer. And I think that's one of the most important things to point out about this bill is that uh, this bill would basically put police officers, uh, it would hold them to the same standard as other public employees and that their disciplinary records and instances of misconduct, those would all be accessible by the public. Right now they have an exemption um, where those aren't, uh, those are basically hidden from the public and it's really hard to get them. And, you know, there has been you know, all this pressure for more transparency when it comes to the police department, you know, given the scandals uh, with the previous chief and, and how the department actually operates. Right. And, that, and that's another thing that, you know, I think is in the back of lawmakers' minds. It's not too long ago that Louis Kealoha was the police chief. Um, and even though there's a new police chief, you know, these transparency issues, it's they didn't suddenly, you know, um, just remedy. And Chief Ballard has in the past indicated that she wants to bring more transparency to the police department. So I'm sure that's something that the lawmakers are thinking of. Yeah, it, it's just unfortunate, though, that we are at this strange stage of the of the legislative session. You know, here it is June. They normally would be uh, POW by now. But because of the isolation and this pandemic, uh, things have just been um, uh very unusual, but the public doesn't really get a chance to weigh in on on these changes as the negotiators go back and forth during this uh, conference committee process. They don't get a chance to weigh in. Um, and r- really, although the legislature's you know, holding these committee hearings, um, they're only taking written testimony and they're not really, you know, they don't have anyone to ask questions of because there's no one that can be in the building. It's closed to the public so there's been actually some pretty entertaining scenes playing out on these live streams while they're trying to work out you know this is the first time all the committee rooms are being live streamed so uh, they're trying to work through all all these things and it's really interesting to see that in the process as it's happening well uh it's just unfortunate that yeah the public can't get down there (laughs) you know just given the situation uh but yeah it's one of those those topics that, uh, yeah, you, th- something's got something's to give with this situation. Uh, and it, it looks like something might actually make it up to the governor's desk this time. The, that's the hope of the lawmakers. They've indicated, you know, throughout the past week that this is one of the measures that they want passed. Just what it's going to look like in the end is what we're all going to be waiting to see. All right. Well, thanks so much, Blaze. Thanks. That was reporter Blaze Lovell with today's Reality Check. Read the story online at civilbeat.org. The COVID-19 crisis has upended local businesses. Some closed due to government-mandated shutdowns, while others have closed up due to a lack of customers and revenue. But as restrictions have lifted across the state, some businesses are reopening in this new world of masks and physical distancing. 
What's out there to help businesses survive and thrive? ProService Hawaii is a human resources firm that offers hiring, managing, and training services to Hawaii businesses, including Hawaii Public Radio. As the pandemic set in, the company informed businesses about COVID-19 and helped guide companies applying for government assistance programs. It has also hosted webinars and guides for reopening and expansion, which are available for all companies, not just its clients. The conversations Jason Ubai spoke with Ben Godsey, he's the Pro Services uh, President and CEO. They talked about common concerns that he hears from companies. The big picture ones are, you know, where where are they going to get demand from? You know, and how are that they, they had a business that was, you know, if it was in if it's in restaurants or retail, you know, it has a certain cost structure, and now the flow of traffic is going to be different, uh, and so the economics of the business are different, and so. Every business owner is trying to uh, rework their their business model to ensure that it's going to be one that's going to be sustainable. The big concerns are a, a lack of clarity on, you know, when will tourists return, and you know, and, and therefore, you know, what's the level of demand that's going to be available for a business, you know, and with that uncertainty over, you know, where where are their customers coming from and what are they going to buy, their you know, they they have questions about how to plan their their staffing, um, and you know, what which people to um, you know to, to to build the business around. You know, how do they bring people back if they laid people off or furloughed them? Uh, others are thinking about it differently, where they're looking at their business and saying, our long term demand is going to be significantly lower, and do we go from having people who are furloughed to you know, to, to laying people off or firing them, you know, having to let them go. And so, you know, it it, it really does differ by business, um, but every business owner is, you know, taking, you know, needing to take the time, and we're working with them to have them take the time to think strategically, not just about the next few weeks and month, but to look longer term and try to plan forward, you know, through the rest of the year and looking into next year, and how are they judicious in reopening their business? Uh, many businesses right now are deciding, you know, maybe not now is not the time to fully reopen because it, it costs a lot to reopen. It's very expensive to, you know, to, to cover the cleaning costs to, for, for all of the new regulations, and you're going to have reduced demand. Uh, so others are looking at different hours. Others are looking at different delivery models. Do, do they move significantly online? So... It's different for every client, but it's about what is the right approach to being in business right now. One of the things that, um, as far as workforce goes, um, a lot of people have been working from home if they're able to. Do you think this shift to remote work is a permanent uh, thing, or is this a, just a temporary as uh, the pandemic increases? What do you hear from business owners? It's absolutely going to be permanent, and it's circumstantial. Like, not every business is, you know, is going to remain in a remote capacity. You know, some businesses will go fully back to everybody in the office, but some businesses, perhaps many businesses, will be much more flexible with that uh, in the future and allow uh, more employees to work from home or work more flexible schedules. Uh, and some businesses will give up office space. Absolutely. There, you know, there will be a shift in um, because office space is expensive, and you know, particularly as businesses are looking to cut costs, you know, they they will look at whether or not they can be uh, effective without with less with less space. Again, not it, it, it not everybody. You know, many many businesses will go 100% back to normal office environment, just as equally many businesses will will permanently change their uh, their approach to you know to to you know the rigidity by which they, they they keep people in the office they'll become much more flexible or they'll go completely virtual i did have a question on uh hiring and training how can businesses conduct that safely most people are used to coming in for an interview doing all that in person but how can they do this virtually while finding the right candidate and getting the right uh feel for an employee well, I think that the interview process is is quite easy remote, you know, with with the technologies that people have adopted, you know, Zoom meetings, Google Google Hangouts, things like that. Uh, you can do plenty of of interviewing. 
what's harder to do is to, to to have work you know work shadowing or you know somebody come and and can try out the job um, you know and some work has to be on site and some can be remote so um, you know people who need to to do customer service work with their hands obviously you know, that's going to be in an environment where uh, they're going to be present and there in order to, to interview and hire you're just going to adapt the same processes as you would for your existing employees you're going to maintain some you know maintain social distancing and the other safety protocols um, you know and conduct the interviews and the trainings in 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 that way but you know, many people are going to be able to um, go through the hiring process fully remote. You know, and now there's technology, HR management software that can manage the entire process remotely, right on through to people getting paid, you know, trained online and paid online. But what gets hard is, you know, you know, hey, how do you know what your peer is good at? You know, how do you get to know them in that social situation and kind of know that, the informalities of how work gets done, that becomes a little bit more challenging and takes uh, takes effort on you know on, on on the manager's part to ensure that employees learn those little things that would have just happened innately when you know people were in the desk next to each other uh, or you know, um, you know sitting at a table at, at, at lunch at the office uh, if they're if they're working remotely. I think that that for for all employers. You know what I would emphasize is to to keep taking time to forecast out your business. And forecasting out your business is different than a budget. It's really looking at current demand. It's looking at current. You know, kind of what what's selling now? What are the margins on that? What you know? How will your business perform? You know, if 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 those products and services do well, and other products and services don't, and really have clarity that, you know, for what your business model is going to look like and how you staff for that and how you cover your other fixed costs like rent and, and equipment and things like that so that you don't get surprised um, because the environment is so different. If you're surprised, usually it's expensive and it's hard to recover from that during, you know, a, a period with as much change and adversity as we have right now. So, look at your business strategically on a regular basis and replan your plan and think it all the way through to, you know, hey, who's on shift next week? That's one of the most important things for ensuring your business has the best chance of of thriving uh, over the coming months. And the second thing is, you know, if you if if you haven't taken advantage of all of the assistance programs, to look at them again. They're not front and center in the news right now, but there are still significant assistance programs that are available for employers. And the dollars you know, may not be enough to cover every expense you have, but every little bit helps. That was Ben Godsey, president and CEO of ProService Hawaii, talking about reopening businesses during the COVID-19 crisis. To see the company's webinars and guides for employers, visit ProService.com and our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. We began the week looking at how Punahou, one of the state's largest private schools and most well-endowed schools, plans to reopen classes in the fall. Today, we spotlight a small mission school, Hongguanji Mission in Nuuanu, that has been resourceful and able to pivot because of its size. Here's head of school, David Randall. We're prepared to invite students back on campus this fall. We have the benefit of being part of the Hawaii Association of, In of Independent Schools, which has been a very collaborative organization, uh, large schools, small independent schools. But the heads have been very collaborative in terms of sharing ideas and sharing what, what they're planning for. 
which has made it a little easier to prepare for the fall and build in some flexibility. So our goal is to have all of our kids back on campus starting on August 11th, preschool through eighth grade. And then what we're planning to do is minimize cross-contamination between classrooms by having cohorts of students who stay together throughout the day. And I understand that you got creative as far as the physical barriers that uh, you've uh, decided to institute in the classrooms. Yes. So it's interesting because we want social distancing, you know, of a minimum of three feet is what the guidance is now telling us. But schools have spent the last decade purchasing furniture that is built for collaboration. So there's not a lot of individual desks (laughs) left. So it makes distancing a little bit more difficult. So, you know, we have a teacher who came up with a brilliant idea of using PVC piping and clear shower curtain to build little cubbies. And so we're using that with our youngest student to give them the opportunity to have their own space, but still be able to see all of their classmates, still be able to see their teachers. And it gives them a little space where if they need a respite from the mask, they can take it off. And so far, as we're using it with our summer school, pre-kindergarten and kindergarten students, it's working very well. So this is just shower curtain liner, right? It is. It is. It's clear shower curtain taped with clear tape so that a solid barrier between each student. And at least that way, they still feel like they're part of a class. They can see their classmates. They can see their teachers. The teachers can see the students and what they're doing and working on. And so it's kind of a win-win. You know, we're looking at using plexiglass and some other dividers and barriers for the upper grade. But this particular unit works great for the little kids. So what's the total enrollment of the school? We are 370 students. We've managed to maintain our enrollment from last year. And we have 80 in preschool and pre-K. And gets a little smaller as we get up into the upper grades as students leave to go to some of the larger private schools that have high schools attached. But we are at our optimal enrollment. We have been reading about other schools that are in dire straits and have had to shut down. It's nice to hear that you're at least able to maintain with your school community. You know, we've spent several years building a program that is very well-rounded, and we're taking all the precautions we need to take for fall without changing that program. So, you know, we're making sure that our students get all their core classes, but they continue to get the resource classes that make Honganji a special place. They continue to get their art, their music, their drama class, their PE, their swimming, their technology literacy class, Japanese language, library studies, that all of that is still being built into the program in a safe manner. And so do you have chorus? Because I know chorus seems to be an issue at many schools. (laughs) We do not have chorus. We do have a music class that everybody takes from preschool through sixth grade, and then it turns into taiko when they're in middle school. But chorus is not part of the program. Uh, We do have some programs like our winter program and our spring program where the students perform and sing, uh, that's not going to happen at this point. Now, you have also been able to help the community, uh, help the families of first responders during this period of isolation when everybody was learning remotely. <laughs> you folks offered a child care, right? So not right away, but we did open our summer school early, uh, well, earlier than most of the other schools, and planned for face-to-face instruction for preschool, pre-K, and kindergarten students. And we opened it uh, to our children of first responders and healthcare workers to try to take some of that childcare burden off of them while they're they're working so hard to help protect all of our, our communities. So... Yeah, it was was a good thing to do, and it's turned out to be a a positive. Uh, The students are very happy to be back on campus and see their friends. Um, You know, we don't seem to be having any issues with mask wearing or anything else. So it's been a positive, I think, for our our school community as well as the greater community. What do you think will be the biggest challenge for you folks in the fall? I don't know how you're uh, situated for space on campus. Yeah, uh, I think our biggest challenge is really working a schedule that allows for our each individual classroom to be a cohort and still be able to get all of their resource classes the way um, I was mentioning earlier. 
but it's a little difficult without them leaving their classroom to go into a resource classroom that might get shared by multiple grade levels. So, you know, we're, we're building out a schedule right now that will allow that to happen, but keep that cohort um, together in their classroom. Uh, I think that's going to be one of our biggest challenges is just trying to make sure that our program continues on while we minimize any cross-contamination between classrooms and between grade levels. Now, Punahou School, I think, sent out a e-blast to their school community, you know, last week detailing their plans. And they said there's still some components that they're working on. Uh, is it pretty much the same for you as well? Is it, you know, as you get some of these things buttoned down that you'll kind of update parents? Yes. Yeah. So it, similar to what every other independent and the public schools are encountering, um, you know, we're trying to plan for multiple scenarios. And so we had a we had a plan that we began putting in place back in April. Um, I held several town hall Zoom meetings with my families last month in May to kind of go over what we were planning for. And there are still some details to be worked out because of the changing situation and the fluidity of the situation. But by and large, I think, thanks to the fact that it's been a very collaborative process within HAIS, you know, we were able to really put some, put some plans in place early on that will allow our kids to come back on campus. And then if and when a student gets diagnosed with COVID-19, you know, we'll be able to roll seamlessly into distance learning for either that classroom or that grade level or uh, whatever Department of Health instructs us in terms of a best practice. Right, but if you can kind of uh, maintain a bubble, it doesn't mean you'll have to shut the whole school down. Exactly, and that's the goal. The goal is uh, if one second grade student gets diagnosed uh, with COVID-19, only that student's classroom rolls out to distance learning and everybody else in the school is able to continue to come to school and be on campus. We feel like that's going to be the way to uh, have the, the least impact on our families who need the child care. Uh, we also think it'll be the best way to keep as many students as possible on campus in face-to-face -face instruction. So it's kind of in a negative situation, it's the, it's the best outcome. And so how are you dealing with my two favorite things in school? And that was recess and field trips. Uh, that's a good question. Um, so field trips right now, we're focusing on, on virtual field trips as much as possible. We're not going to be uh, having the students go off campus during the school year, at least not in the early months. Uh, we'll see what happens there. You know, kind of our plan is for the worst case scenario and then letting us ease up on restrictions as we go through the fall if conditions allow for that. Um, so, yeah, field trips, we're focusing on virtual field trips as much as possible. We've designated uh, areas on our campus for recess. So those individual classrooms will, be, will have an um, area that is designated for them to go to when they want to have recess. So they'll still be able to see their friends from a distance from, you know, one field to the other or the basketball courts to uh, what we call our green space, which is a field but they won't interact with the other classes. So they'll all be, you know, in their cohort, or as you called it, their, their bubble, their classroom bubble, um, in designated areas on campus. And then, you know, every week we'll rotate that so they get to be in a different area for recess. So we'll just have to yeah, massage those things, and, and hopefully as things change we can uh, get back to normal. Exactly. So, you know, we're thinking... You know, we have, we've designated one-way walkways and hallways and stairwells to keep, you know, the, the traffic flow in one direction. But we're thinking, you know, if things do loosen up, if things do improve, we can remove that. We can make our, our cohorts a little bit bigger. Instead of being a classroom cohort, it can be a grade-level cohort. So, you know, if things do improve, we're prepared to move towards something that looks a little more familiar in terms of school. Um, and if they don't, then we'll be able to continue to have face-to-face -face instruction for the duration, hopefully. But you feel pretty good about uh, where you're at and what's to come. We do. We do. So fortunately, having students on campus for summer school, having the preschool, pre-K, and kindergarten students has allowed us 
to really beta test a lot of what we're planning in terms of protocols and safety procedures for the fall. And so we feel very good about the fact that we're going to have a safe environment that the kids are going to be able to come back to and learning will take place at a normal pace and a safe atmosphere where our students are happy to see their friends and happy to be at school. All right. Okay. Dave Roundable, thanks so much. My, my pleasure, and thank you. I guess we'll see you August. <laughs> we'll see. Yes, we'll see everybody in August. We're looking forward to it. And that was Dave Randall, head of school for Hongwanjin Mission School here on Oahu. Later this week, we'll be hearing from Maui's Seabury Hall about its plan to adapt to COVID times. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, reopening with safety in mind on July 16th, offering reconnections to the art, courtyards, and the museum community with new weekend evening hours. HonoluluMuseum.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, my name is Matthew Fox. I am author of The Tao of Thomas Aquinas. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about first wisdom for hard times. Sunday morning at 11. Well, that wraps it up for today. Tomorrow we talk poo-poo theater, zooming in a graveyard. Do you have a story about how you're preparing your children to get back into the classroom? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. I'm Catherine Cruz. On behalf of the staff, join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.